Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of The Jordan Paris Show. My guest today is one of the few conservative professors left on a college campus. He's a professor of political science at a community college in New York, and he's here with me today to talk about all things education. Nicholas Giordano, welcome. Thank you for having me. And not only am I a conservative professor, but it's in New York, nevertheless. Imagine that. Yes. I fooled everyone totally. to get in. Whenever I hear the major, the class, political science, I'm like, oh, God, like, what could that entail? You know, a liberal, a leftist professor teaching the science of politics. Like, okay, what is what is political science? I, so I'll ask you the question, actually. What even is political science? It's the science of government and politics. <laughs> no, it's really to get an understanding. It sounds like of, indoctrination to me, you know? It depends on how you teach it. So I'm not going to lie. There are many political science professors that do try and indoctrinate, but I know math professors that try and indoctrinate their students and talk politics with them, even though they're teaching mathematics. But the way I teach it, it's really to give the students an understanding of how our government works, who's responsible for what, but more importantly, the core American concepts, things like liberty, things like freedom, that they may have heard, but they never really had it defined for them. They don't really understand it. And so one of the things I do the first day of classes, not now because it's virtual and it's horrible, but in my in-person classes, when I'm on campus and when in person, the first day of class, I give every student a citizenship exam. And I do that for a specific reason. It's to really show them how little they know about American government because they all virtually fail it. Out of 250 somewhat students per semester, there's only maybe about 5%, 10% at most that would actually pass it. The rest fail it. Then I give them the Constitution, but it's not the United States Constitution. It's actually the Russian Constitution. I just replaced Russian Federation with United States everywhere. Oh and sure God. enough, again, only about a handful of students will recognize that they're not reading the United States Constitution. And that's what I do before I even say a word in the class. Once we go through everything and I tell them what's really up, I explain to them that the reason I do this is to shame them. I'm a big believer in shaming them and making them feel dumb. And the reason I want to do that is because they have been willfully ignorant about the United States their entire lives. And it's to show them how our education system has been a failure when it comes to learning about American government and politics. It opens their eyes and it actually, it draws them in, it hooks them, it gets them to trust me. And I tell them, you've been living here for most of my students. There are some that are right off the boat that come from foreign countries. They may be immigrants. They may be just naturalized. And then the rest of them have been here their whole lives, yet they know nothing about the United States. And it's how can you foster a healthy country? How, how can you make this country live up to its ideals if you know nothing about it? And that's what we're seeing today, that people don't know any of the core concepts. And so they're willing to grant government all this power that they're not supposed to have. And that's what I try and do. I try and get back to the roots of why the United States exists. I also want to tell them that they have opinions on everything, everything, every single issue out there they have an opinion on. Well, if you don't know why our government was set up and you don't know the roles and responsibilities of the institutions and who does what, how can you possibly say government should or shouldn't do anything if you're not familiar with the way government actually operates? 
And, and so that's the reason I engage in those exercises. And I think it's really eye-opening. It's not my job to make them believe what I believe. It's not my job to make them a conservative and take my positions on the issues. It's my job to get them to use their brain and actually think. Thinking critically is important. And unfortunately, that's what we don't have in the education system. Instead, it's a system built on obedience and compliance. Totally. Uh, so a lot of my my continuously delayed TED Talk is about exactly that. It's all about education. And parts of it I do explain where, yeah, it's really just about obedience and compliance. So I totally agree with you there. But man, you sound like a great professor. I, I would have loved to have taken you. And I, I went on Rate My Professor and it's something crazy, like 97% of people uh, say they would take you again. Like, And, and I was reading some of the, the things that people have to say about you, really uh, rave reviews about- Including liberals. There was only one that was like, oh- you know, he's a good professor. Could tell there is a slight conservative slant, but I was impressed for the most part that not everyone was saying that because God knows if I was teaching political science at a university, I I probably uh, would, would have a lot of kids saying uh, that, yeah, this guy's really biased. I allow the students to tell me what's on their mind. And if they approach me from a conservative perspective, I'll take a liberal point of view. If they take a liberal point of view, I'll take a conservative point of view because that's my job. But so you're I've playing had, devil's advocate. Absolutely. Not, but I've had liberal students come up to me, even with a conservative bent and saying, you know, thank you for allowing me to express my thought that I really appreciate it. It's not like I shut them down or anything. In, in my class, it's free speech. Everyone gets to talk about their own point of view. Everyone gets to give their opinion. And I explain to them opinions. If someone disagrees with you, that's not hateful. It's not offensive. That's the United States. That's what makes us unique. That's what makes us such a great country. And so everyone appreciates that I give everyone the opportunity to say what they think. And I don't demean them. I don't criticize them. I'll criticize the generations. I'll criticize the American culture that we're too into the pop culture and stuff like that. Oh, but I'll yeah. never attack students ever. That's wonderful. What is it like to be a conservative on a, on a college campus? I mean, can you, <laughs> do you get pushback or can you speak uh, totally freely or do you have to whisper and tiptoe? Do you ever from the administration, do you ever get any, any crap? It all depends. So there's several professors that don't like me. They don't like my, they don't like me because of my politics. Meanwhile, yeah. you know, I never judge anyone because of the politics they have, but at my, at my college, it's different. It's why do you, well, well, why do you think people, why do you think these professors don't like you? Is it because just because you, you're known as conservative or, or have you said some, some, no, some it's really because controversial of, things? Cause I went on Tucker Carlson. That's why. <laughs> Ah, right, 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 right. <laughs> they don't like him. Um, but the reality is most people at the college treat me well, I have to say. My, my colleagues, for the most part, most of my colleagues and the administrators I get along with, they never criticize me. They never push back against me. They don't try and marginalize me because I'm respectful. And that, that's the important thing. It's something that we're missing today is when we are debating that we do have to be respectful of one another. It is difficult for most conservatives on college campuses. I'm lucky. See, conservatives tend to hate the idea of tenure. 
the reason I get to speak out is because I have tenure, because I have that protection in place. It actually helps conservatives on college campuses. For the first, you know, three years before I got tenure, I did keep my opinions to myself. I didn't speak out loudly. And the reason I didn't do that is because I am worried that there would be a target on my back for the simple fact that academia, the majority of academia, is overwhelmingly liberal. At the community college level, it's a little bit different. We have a little bit of a better split. We're still outnumbered, but it's we're not more like 13 to one. No, not at all. And it's because of the student body, because the student body is more reflective of reality. You have students that are working full time and going to school. You have adult students that are returning to education after decades. You have young students that may be new immigrants. You have students take care of parents or children. And so the student body is more reflective of real life. It's not in that four year university bubble that we see all over the country. That's where it's really bad. But the administrators have never given me a hard time. Never once did anyone at the college come out and say, well, you're not allowed to speak up and express conservative thought. And they never marginalized me. So I have to say, I have a very good working relationship at Suffolk Community College. I I think it's a great place to work. It's a healthy work environment. Hopefully it stays that way. Do you have any theories as to why most professors are liberal? Because they've never been in the real world. Seriously, they went through the academic system and their first job was in academia. Their career was in academia. I approach it differently because I come from the outside world. Prior to being a full-time professor, I was actually in the Homeland Security Emergency Management Arena. And I worked at all levels of government, all different capacities. And I understand how government really works behind the scenes not through a textbook, and how it works in theory through the academics. I do have a private sector background as well because I was in Homeland Security and Emergency Management, but then I also went to a Homeland Security Emergency Management consulting firm. Growing up, I did real jobs like construction, like working in a bakery. And and so I have a much different worldview than most of the academics. If you teach your whole life, if, if that's been your only career, then all you know is theory and not reality. And so that's what makes me, I think, a little bit more conservative than the other professors on campus. Yeah. You know what I think, too? A lot of these degrees, like, for example, philosophy, the only thing that you can do is teach. Oh, absolutely. Gender studies, Caribbean studies. And and, and what that is, Nicholas, is it's literally... It's a pyramid scheme. If you go to go to school to like teach it, to, to become a teacher of that same subject later on, it's just a, it's just a pyramid scheme. It is. So. And it's a big problem because you have this outrageous student debt that pe- students are racking up for degrees that just make no sense and are not going to lead to a career down the road. And I think that it should actually be illegal. I mean, these colleges, these universities that offer some of these useless degrees, they should actually be held responsible for what they're doing. Well, a lot of these universities, they, they, you know, they pretend like, oh, we care about our students' success afterwards. But until they put their actual money where their mouth is, I don't care what comes out of their mouth. They don't care. Uh, Because until, I mean, I think places like Purdue University, they're offering something instead of like paying tuition. And this is only for certain degree paths for certain majors. But after you graduate, then you pay like X percentage of your salary for X amount of years. It's like 10 or 12% of your salary for the next like four years or something like that. 
uh, instead of paying a bunch of tuition, 20, 30, $40,000 up front. So they're really, they're quite vested in your success. Absolutely. They, yes. I like that system. Whereas right now you take, yeah, you mentioned philosophy, gender studies, and you just rack up an average of uh, $38,887 in student loan debt, which is held by, by the way, over 40 million Americans. And here we are with $1.71 trillion in student loan debt, and it's an absolute disaster. That being said, I mean, what do you think about the Biden administration's plan for 50K of student debt relief? Well, there's two things. First of all, I'll tell you right off the bat, everything that a university says for the most part is a lot of BS that they really care. It's just BS because if they cared, they wouldn't have raised tuition to the levels that have outpaced every single other sector, including the health sector. The tuition increases have outpaced everything. So they're raising their tuition at alarming rev- levels, they've been doing this since the 1980s, since the government took, basically took over the student loan industry. And then you have them at the other side of their mouths talking about, well, we should make, uh, you know, higher education. We should guarantee it for people. We should have the universal education system. Well, you're not getting rid of all the salaries. And, and so it, it's just a bunch of nonsense. They're liars. They want to keep it private. They want the student loan industry to continue because they just make tons of money. They tell 18-year-old kids, take out as many student loans as you can, give us that money, we'll give you an education, and hopefully you have success along the way. And that's what they do. As far as debt, student debt forgiveness, this is an idea that's been batted around for the last few years. This is something that should not be placed on the backs of taxpaying Americans. Americans should not be footing the bill for the irresponsibility of these schools that offer these garbage degrees that can't lead to careers, successful careers where you're actually going to make money. And what really concerns me is all this talk about debt forgiveness. First of all, how's that going to work? I mean, are we going to forgive the debt of, let's say, a student whose parents are millionaires? Are we forgiving ten to $50,000 of that student's debt? And if not, well, is that fair either? Well, what about those that have paid their student loans for the last 10 years? What about them? Are they going to get you know $40,000 even though they may only have $10,000 of student loan debt left? And the answer is probably not. And they probably won't even get that $10,000 relief either. It's just ridiculous. And putting it on the backs of taxpayers is unfair. If the universities are the ones that are responsible, maybe they should use their endowments and have to pay for any BS degrees that they gave out, that students that have not had success sue these schools and get paid. But I also don't like it because – go ahead. I have to say that the the burden – of whose fault it is. I don't know who it falls on. I want to say it's equally the university, but also the students. So many students, they pick a major without even considering how much it's going to cost them over four years, what kind of jobs that they can get with that degree, what the starting salaries in those potential career paths are, how that's going to grow over time. There's no ROI analysis by any students going into college. It's like, oh, just you know, whatever I feel like doing without even considering the ROI in a lot of cases. So I, I have to cast a little bit of the blame on the student's part. 
I think it's both their responsibility. The college issue's part. I think it's the students' fault. I think it's parents' fault. It's everyone's fault that when we look at how it's, it's divided up. I mean, first of all, students don't do the research. Now, we are talking about 17, 18-year-old kids that are making these really consequential decisions. If I think back to when I was 17, 18 years old, I was an idiot. I made a lot of wrong decisions during those time periods, and there are certain things I went to a private university because I did take out student loans because my parents couldn't afford college and I, I'm still paying them back. I'm almost done. I looked at it as an investment in myself, but I never maximized the student loans. I d- actually did do the research. Most students don't, and they don't know the consequence of student loans, and they don't know how that debt burden hangs over them because they don't see it immediately. They see it after they're done with college. If they had to start paying back the loans immediately, Then they'd immediately say, oh, I need to take out less. I'm not paying this back. But I should have went to, I look back, I should have went to a state school because whether I went to a private university or a state school, well, teachers make the same amount of money. It doesn't matter. And so it doesn't matter a university you go to. There are smart decisions. I was smart enough to go to a community college for the first two years of my life because I knew that more people should do that money. Absolutely. Like, is there any downside of doing that? There's no downside. I mean, for the most part, nearly every credit transfers. And if you do the research right, every credit will transfer to the schools. And you save, literally, you're saving yourselves tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt by going to a community college first. And if you just, you know, there's all this talk about wiping away the student debt. And there's two things nobody pays attention to. The first thing is there may be a tax burden that's levied against you. Whenever debt's forgiven, That money counts as ordinary income. So if $50,000 worth of debt gets forgiven, you have to pay tax money on that $50,000. Well, if you couldn't afford your student loan monthly payments, how are you going to afford that payment to the IRS? And believe me, the IRS tax on some hefty fines and fees and interest if you can't pay it when you're supposed to. So we have to make people aware of that. But the second thing is, what are we telling people? If we forgive student loan debt, what happens when they get older and they can't afford their mortgage? What happens when they get older and they can't afford a car payment? What happens then? Are they going to require that we forgive that debt? And that's the problem that I have with this whole idea of debt forgiveness. It just simply doesn't work. I think that everyone has a responsibility to play. The student that took out the loan has a responsibility. But I also think the schools that have created this problem have a responsibility as well. And so maybe we could think of a shared approach. And I think that's more logical. And I do think that if a student really has a problem with the degree that they received, well, maybe they should take that college to court. We've seen that happen with certain, DeVry University, Briarcliff College. We've, We've seen it happen with other colleges where students ended up suing that college and that college was found liable. Well, maybe students should take the same approach to some of these four-year universities that exist out there. Yeah, totally. Uh, You know, I want to talk about, I want to pivot to indoctrination in education. It it just seems like the indoctrination of kids into socialism, this this leftist way of thinking and, and how bad America is and, you know, how America was founded on white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. How bad America is? It occurs starting in, in grade school and intensifies in college a lot. And college students are punished for their conservative beliefs with grade reductions a lot of time and other forms of ostracization. 
And parents and students are paying exorbitant amounts of money for this indoctrination. The cost of education is a problem not being addressed. Most students come out with useless degrees, as we've been mentioning, a lot of debt and a negative outlook on the country. How do we address particularly the negative outlook on the country? Well, the biggest reason that happens is because students aren't educated in actual American history. They're told lies. They're told revisionist history. The whole 1619 project is a joke. It's not based in history. Most people, not even not even the 1619 project, but just a lot of a lot of history taught in schools. You don't even notice. You'll never realize that you're well, being fed a lot of lies. Well, the scary part is that a lot of it I didn't understand till I actually researched it myself as far as American history. So I didn't get the education on American government while I was in K through 12. I started to get it when I was in college, and then I really found it interesting, and so I looked at it further. So one of the things, this is a country built on slavery. We're constantly told it's a, bun- it's a country that the sole purpose, the whole beginning of our history was built on the premise of racism and slavery. Well, no, that's not true. In fact, if you actually do the research and get people to think critically, you'll find that over 50% of the founding fathers that attended the Constitutional Convention either didn't have slaves, renounced slavery at some point in their life, or freed their slaves upon their death, stating that slavery was wrong. Most people are completely unaware of the fact that slavery was heavily debated at the Constitutional Convention, that there were several founding fathers that warned us about the evils of slavery and how it's perpetuated throughout society. More importantly, we don't focus, you know, we talk about black history. We'll talk about Martin Luther King. We'll talk about Rosa Parks, maybe Medgar Evers. But we don't focus on real black history in the United States. Most people don't know that the beginning of the revolution started because Crispus Attucks was killed in the Boston uh, massacre, that he was the first casualty of the war. And Crispus Attucks was a former slave. He was someone that worked on the ships. He escaped as a slave from the South, worked on the ships, and went out to protest. And then the British killed him along with four others. And so most people don't even know the name of Crispus Attucks. And it's truly astonishing that we, well, there's a lot of contributions that we're completely unaware of where most Americans don't know the true history of slavery in the United States, the true contributions of, of black people in the United States. They're completely unaware of some of the heroes that we have. They're unaware that 5,000 black patriots fought in the American Revolution. We had an integrated army at the founding of this country in the American Revolution. And most people are unaware of that. Most people are unaware of James Armistead, who served as an American spy and a double agent that was feeding us information. They're unaware of Peter Salem, a black patriot who killed uh, the uh, British major. I think his name was uh, John Pickhorn. They don't know who Lambert Latham is, a black patriot who killed the British officer after his American commander was murdered by the British. And so we don't have this appreciation that the United States was a country that actually had diversity from the beginning. You know, we don't talk about Lancaster Hill or Peter Bass, and there was even Hispanics, General Galvez, Luis Unzaga, Jorge, Jordi, uh, Jordi Mesquita. They all played a role in America's founding, but we don't teach that to our students. And so if we don't teach that, people don't know about it. 
And all they hear is that one side that we were just a slave nation. Most don't know the fact that slavery was outlawed in several northern states fairly early on when you look at those northern states. That slavery was seen as an abomination and outlawed. Yet people think that every, every one of the colonies, every one of the states had legalized slavery. That's not true. Slavery was always debated. And there was one founding father, I can't recall his name off the top of my head. I believe he was from North Carolina. I could be off on that. But he warned us that the sins of slavery are going to haunt us for generations to come. And he was absolutely right. He said that during the Constitutional Convention. He was absolutely right. And once again, these are complex issues. You know, the, the idea of history is not something that's just simple, right or wrong. It's simple, black or white, no pun intended. There are a lot of gray areas that exist within history. Andrew Jackson, President Jackson is known as being a racist. He's known for hating Native Americans. He's known for the Trail of Tears where Cherokee Indians, thousands of Cherokees marched through the Appalachian Mountains and died. And so we call him a racist. Well, no, it's much more complicated than that. In fact, there were several Indian tribes that actually benefited from Andrew Jackson, that actually supported Andrew Jackson, and that Andrew Jackson actually worked closely with because they helped in the Battle of New Orleans and he had a good relationship with them. Once again, things aren't black and white. There's a lot of gray areas in history, and we're trying to apply 21st century standards to students of history. So when we look at this liberal indoctrination that's taking place, we see it throughout our education system. And on college campuses, I, I liken it to four areas. Academic freedom. Professors have academic freedom to talk about the controversial issues and give their points of view the way they see fit. But students don't have academic freedom. And they can be penalized for their viewpoints. Then you have the actual liberal indoctrination, where if a professor is teaching strictly their point of view, it's an opinion they're teaching, and they're trying to push it off as fact, as if it really exists. They're not letting the students know that it's opinion. And if you dare cross that teacher, that teacher is going to embarrass and shame you in the middle class where the students can end up being silent. Students aren't going to push back. They're not going to think critically. They're just going to go through the motions to get an A. Then you have the idea of censorship and safe spaces. This is a really big problem on college campuses. College campuses used to be the harbingers of free speech. Unfortunately, you have these student groups that create all these different speech codes that the administration adopts where, you know, we're going to outlaw men and women and, and the words American are offensive. The American flags. It, it's completely ludicrous. It's gone out of control. That's where you get Congress members saying amen and a women like the morons that they are. Stupid cakes. It's just sheer stupidity. But we see these speech codes being implemented. And then at the same time, we see speakers being harassed, where we see the, these student organizations from the far left that are going to protest, they're going to harass speakers, they're going to shout speakers down, or they're going to force the administration to pull the speakership, to not allow people to speak on campus. And this so doesn't happen when a liberal speaker comes to campus. This only happens when conservative speakers come to campus. Well, the thing is, and this is the main difference to me between the leftists and conservatives, conservatives will disagree with you on the issues, but they're not going to sit there and attack you personally. They'll still defend your right to say whatever you want. 
I may not agree with everything you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it from Brian Rose. Why can't we all embody that? Come on. Absolutely. But that's where the liberals will totally try and assassinate your character. I mean, just take a look at what's going on. Right now in the United States, we're trying to declare 75 million Americans white supremacists including black people that voted for President Trump, they're white supremacists. Well, it's, it's because multiracial whiteness, they're, they, they, they're, actually, they're actually white, didn't you know? But also, you know, labeling them, labeling us as character assassinating us really as extremists, right-wing extremists. Yeah, well, but, and that's what they'll do on college campuses in order to try and shut down some right-wing groups, in order to shut down, you know, the, not even the right-wing groups, just... Republican and conservative groups, they're going to try and shut it down. It's actually frightening. And people need to understand that what the left has done successfully is they've been able to brand anything they disagree with as hate speech. That's what they've done successfully. So if you talk about, and I say this constantly, if you talk about Islamic terrorism, well, then we're going to label you an Islamophobe. And we're going to silence you that way. If you talk about transgender issues, well, we're going to label you a transphobe and you'll be silenced. If you're going to talk about illegal immigration, in fact, if you say the word illegal immigration, well, that's going to be considered hateful. It's going to be considered racist and bigoted. And so now we're not going to let you speak because the left understands that if you control speech, you control thought. And that's the scary part. That's what they want to do. They want to control thought, and that's why they try and marginalize their political opponents. And for far too long, people on the right, Republicans and conservatives, we didn't push back. We remained silent. Well, now it's gotten to the point where anything you say, they go try and destroy lives and livelihoods. They try and get you fired. They try and get you canceled. It's this new woke culture that exists, and it's really dangerous for this country. So now we're finally starting to see people speak up and speak out against this. But we need that more and more people to say, we're not going to stand for this type of dialogue. We're not going to sit there and and engage with this type of dialogue. Instead, we're going to marginalize them. We're going to show that they're the racist, that they're the ones filled with hate, that they're the ones. Well, it's easy. So when I talk about the whole cultural uh, racial bias training that exists out there. (laughs) I love talking about the topic because nobody wants to talk about racial topics because they get all frightened. You know, you say the wrong thing on race. Oh, forget about it. You're going to have the leftist come at you at all levels. However, when someone approaches me and starts talking about white privilege, it's usually a white person that's telling me about my white privilege. A well-off white person, usually on a college campus, yeah, it's 100%, pretty funny. Hundred percent. It's. It's. I, I don't think I've. I speak to tons of African Americans. I go before African or, American organizations, speak to them, and never once did any of them ever say that I have white privilege. You know now, what's funny? These people, these these white liberals, are more emotional about slavery and whatnot than the actual slaves. Well, it's because it's they like, believe they're. Virtuous. They have something missing in their life and they feel that they're morally superior to everyone else. So it's very easy conversation. So they'll approach and they'll say it's based on white privilege. Now, I find the whole concept of privilege insulting because it depends on how you were raised. I mean, if you grew up in an abusive household where you face child abuse day in, day out, you're not privileged. Don't care what color you are. 
you're not privileged. If you're someone that got raped, you're not privileged. If you had drug addicted parents or you yourself went through drug addiction, that's not privilege. And so when someone comes up to me and tells me about white privilege and I say, okay, then take the white privilege challenge. I want you, you're saying that you achieved your success because of your white privilege. I want you to give up 50% of your salary to those that you disenfranchised. Give up 50% of your salary to those that you disenfranchised. Give up 50% of your wealth to those that you feel you've benefited because of your white privilege. How many people do you think took me up on that offer? Probably not uh, anybody. Zero. Now, at least if they did that, at least I would respect, I still think they're a moron, but at least I would respect them at that point and say, well, they put their money where their mouth is. They truly believe in the cause. But instead, what these people want to do is they want a virtue signal. They want to scream white privilege. And then they look in the mirror and they say to themselves how good of a person they are, that they're fighting for minorities when they really don't care about minorities. And we see this time and time again. So when I bring up the white privilege challenge, that usually shuts them up in a minute. Well, this a lot of this virtue signaling, especially when it happens on social media, I think it's very deeply rooted in narcissism. It's, oh, look, look at how virtuous I am. Look how much I, I care. It's all about being cool. If you want to be cool in high school today, you better post the, the, the black square. So I think a lot of it is rooted in narcissism. It is, but it's also rooted in the lack of self-esteem and the the need to be validated by others. Yeah, yeah. That's a big part of it. And and I see it constantly. And when we look at it, you know, nobody talks about all the organizations that provide the racial consciousness trainings, the, the cultural bias trainings. Nobody looks at these groups that are doing and actually doing and engaging in the trainings. Because if you actually do the research and look at the groups that get contracted by the companies and by the government, most of them are white people that own the company. Mm-hmm. It's usually rich white liberals that own the country, companies. And I want you to think about it logically. So I grew up in an era where we were changing trajectory. Okay. I grew up in the 1980. That's when I was born. 60s, 70s, you had real racial tensions throughout totally. this country. As we go through the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s, we start to see racial tensions ease to a, a, an amazing level. I am someone that would never say one-tenth of the things that maybe my grandparents said. We were educated in the sense where we respect everyone and we don't get involved in the ethnic battles that used to exist. And, and, you know, my parents didn't do anything the grandparents did and I didn't do anything my parents did. We were much more open and tolerant and accepting. We have made great strides when it's come to race in this country and we're on this good trajectory. Then all of a sudden you see... In the last eight years, the racial tensions rise up again. So what's really going on? Well, if you look at some of these organizations, their sole purpose of existence is racism. As long as racism exists, they have a business. The racial grievance industry. But it goes worse than that because the racial grievance industry is – Easy to explain. And and those are you people like Al Sharpton's that will just exploit a situation for race purposes in order to make money. A race hustler. To me, what's worse is these the the far left and the leftists that come out there and they promote this idea of inherent racism. That no matter who you are, if you're born white, you're a racist. If you're born any other color, 
you're a victim, no matter what. What they're saying is that basically racism is inherent within us. This is what allows them to always make money. Because if racism was just an educational thing, well, you could solve racism pretty easily. And I think we were on the way to solving that problem. You're always going to have a couple idiots in society. We're a country of 329 million. There's always going to be some people that hate based on race. But we were at a good place. But now when you're saying that you're born with racism, well, you have a never-ending business plan, right? That's that's the ultimate business model. You're never going to go out of business because people are going to be born each and every day. Yep. You know, I heard about, I, th- I think it's a school district in San Francisco. They're making all their teachers go through white privilege training, and they're essentially making them say, apologize for being white. Have you, did you, have you heard about that? I'll have to send yeah, you. I would say that it's not just uh, schools that are doing it. And it wouldn't shock me if that's happening in San Francisco, but we actually see schools. We see governments, we see companies actually engaging in this practice where you're basically trying to shame white people, call them racist, even though they may not, they're probably not racist. Most of us are not racist. And trying to guilt them and forcing them to sit there and apologize for something that they're not even guilty of. I mean, that's racist in and of itself. Now, nobody should be participating in these trainings. And if my college ever tried to do it, I'm not going to participate. I'm tenured. Good luck with that. I'm not participating in any of these trainings because I'm not going to apologize for who I am. And here's my thing. I'm Italian. Italians aren't considered white by the white people standards. We've we've been rejected by the white groups that exist out there. KKK, neo-Nazis, they went after Italians. I don't know how many people are aware of the history of the United States, but actually the largest m- m- lynching in U.S. history was perpetrated on Italians, not blacks. Blacks were lynched at a much larger rate, at a much larger group as a whole. But Italians in one day had the most lynched people in one day. Italians were treated horribly in this country when they first came to this country. We were rejected by white people saying that we're not white. We were rejected by black people saying that we're not black. As a matter of fact, you can find uh, it's a Pane Amaro. It's a, it's a documentary and it shows how Italians were treated. And it actually shows uh, an article, uh, Help Wanted It, from like the 1920s. And it shows white people will get paid a dollar thirty-five to a dollar forty-five an hour. Black people will get paid a dollar twenty to a dollar thirty an hour. Italians will get paid a dollar five to a dollar fifteen an hour. Now that was a, a help wanted ad, and I think it was the New York Times. I'm not really sure about it, uh, mm. but it was in a help wanted ad in one of the major papers of the United States. Like imagine an ad like that today, the outrage that exists. Oh so what God. do you do with someone that's Italian that's not considered white or black? And can we just lump people in because of the pigment of their skin? It's completely ridiculous. Totally. This has been a fascinating conversation. I I would love your comment on one or two more things. And uh, what do you think about the teachers unions and the strangleholds that uh, they seem to have on their members? For example, January 24th, this is, I'm going to read a thread of tweets from Corey A. DeAngelis, new Chicago teachers unions just voted to refuse to show up to work tomorrow. Next, 71% of teachers unions members who voted approval approved the refusal to return to work. The district just agreed to push back reopening until at least Wednesday, January 27th to discuss things with the union. Now, this is this is what the part that I love. If grocery store employees strike 
families can take their money elsewhere. If school employees strike, families should similarly be able to take their children's education dollars elsewhere. This last one, or I'll read two more. Private schools have been fighting to reopen. Teachers unions have been fighting to remain closed. The difference is one of incentives. One of these sectors gets your money regardless of whether they open their doors for business. Education funding is supposed to be meant for educating children, not for protecting a government monopoly. We should fund students instead of institutions. Your comment. Well, to me, first of all, I know a lot of teachers that actually want to get back into the classroom. Uh, Most teachers that I know, and I speak to teachers all over the country, that they despise online learning. They know the students aren't really learning anything, particularly in the younger grades. And to me, what I find absolutely insulting, and everyone should find insulting, if you're going to work, so the tweet that you read about grocery stores uh, workers going in, you know, there's so many people that are going to work not getting paid nearly as well as teachers do. If they could go to work day in and day out, so can teachers. And I wish that we had actual political leaders at the state and local levels that would say, you know what, we're going to pull a President Reagan. President Reagan fired every air traffic controller when they went on strike in the 1980s. Well, guess what? If you're a teacher's union and we opened up the schools and you don't show up for your job, you should be fired as well. The only exemption should be those with pre-existing conditions and those that are in any high risk categories, whether they're older or something like that. You have exceptions for them. That I completely agree with. But as far as normal, vibrant, healthy teachers, the studies are in. From the party that says believe in science, they don't care about the science when it doesn't suit their narrative. We know children are not transmitting it between each other at a large rate. We know that children aren't transmitting it to teachers at a large rate. We know it's one of the lowest transmission places that exist within our society. And the lockdowns have had a detrimental impact on students, particularly the younger students. And I couldn't imagine being a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid going through this. It's very difficult. We need to get the schools open. We need to get the kids in the classroom because they need to socialize. It's not even for the educational aspect is important. But more importantly, kids need to socialize. They need that healthy socialization. They need to be able to engage in all different subjects. They need physical education. They need to engage in art. They need to engage with their peers. They need to have a social life. We are doing extraordinary damage, and we don't even realize it. Well, some of us realize it. A lot of them don't. Well, we we really won't know the extent of it even until much later. Well, we actually have a good idea. The CDC issued a a report stating that the uh, depression and anxiety rates in children are up 51%. Suicide and, you know, thoughts of suicide are up by 20%. So we actually have some of the data coming in. And once again, we either believe in science or we don't. See, the left likes to say believe in science, but only if it fits our narrative. All other science science is junk science. Scientific fascism. You got to believe in all the science that exists, all the data exists. And we have, when it comes to schools and education, we have data from here in the United States. We have data from every single European country. We have data from Asian countries, including South Korea. We have data from Australia, New Zealand. Open up the schools. Yeah. Well, I did an episode with a gentleman named Tom Woods on why, and he presents some stunning evidence in a presentation on mask mandates and lockdowns. 
not only do they not work, but they actually hurt more than they help. And part a, a large part of it is the depression, the suicides, the preventable cancer deaths, and uh, much more. And so, yes, they hurt more than they help. Let's open up the schools. Last thing I'd like your comment on, school choice. I believe in school choice. I think school choice actually makes the public schools more competitive. I think it will actually help the public schools, forcing them to actually work through merit to actually teach and educate the students. I believe, especially when we look at some of the poorest areas of the United States, the most vulnerable communities, they should have the ability to send their children to schools that will actually teach their children, not only teach their children, but will also help incorporate things like discipline and respect and and dignity for one another. I think that's really important. I think that school choice is something that every conservative and Republican should be going into disadvantaged communities, socioeconomic communities, and speaking to the people because the way our education system is built right now is not working. And maybe if we light a fire under the public education sector, maybe they'll begin to reform it in the ways that make more sense. Professor Nicholas Giordano, thank you for joining the Jordan Paris Show. I want to make sure people know where to find your podcast. You've interviewed people like Tucker Carlson, my favorites, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, Dave Rubin, and yours truly, actually, myself. <laughs> you can find those interviews, my interview, interviews with my favorites on the PAS Report. Of course, that's available on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, my favorite platforms. Check out the PAS Report. Professor Giordano, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of The Jordan Paris Show. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, there are a couple of things that you can do. Number one is, of course, share with your friends and family. I think that they would really appreciate it. Number two, we have a free community, a censor-free community on Telegram. You can join that group at jordanparis.com slash group. I'd love to meet you. And lastly, your voice is powerful and it is important. And if you'd like to use your voice and start your own podcast, I'd love to help you out. jordanparis.com slash course is where you can find my free course on how to become a rock star podcaster. That's all. Thanks everyone for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode of The Jordan Paris Show.